hello everyone, and welcome back to the fanfiction tapes. I'm your host today, Maya, pronouns she, her, and I'm joined by... Uh, Dylan, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm Dylan, and I'm pretty sure still he, him. Yeah. <laughs> Last we flashed his bias, the pronouns were still he, him. <laughs> oh, uh, deemed he, him. And I am our producer, Ian. Also, he, him. Today's episode is military sci-fi, a particular subgenre of science fiction featuring futuristic warfare as the main setting. Now, get us started off with what is military sci-fi, often abbreviated as mil sci-fi. Well, probably the most well-known in pop culture example is Halo. I would say that's probably the most well-known example of military sci-fi. I would yeah. agree. I think it's the classic. It is a classic. Well, it's the big one in pop culture. Yes. And in, in the universe of Halo, for the listeners that are unfamiliar, humanity is at war with an alien species that found us, decided it didn't like the cut of our jib, and decided to wipe us off the face of the universe. I'm simplifying a bit, but that's the gist. As part of the defense program of let's throw everything at them and hope we survive, super soldiers uh, known as Spartans wearing futuristic power armor are sent on suicide missions and come back. Well, I was going to say grinning, but uh, they don't do that either. <laughs> they come back alive. Uh, this was the... 2001, well, first featured in the 2001 hit game produced by Bungie. Longtime listeners of the show know that I am I am a fan of Bungie. What about Free for Free? Don't bring that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> they can make a good arena shooter, a good Halo game. I have, I have, but we're not here to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, listening. To that, like, explanation, it really made me go, damn, this is Xenoblade for everything. Mm. <laughs> there's only four of them, but there's one for everything. <laughs> and, like, a similar vein to Halo, uh, but also different, because the, uh, the, the black sheep of the franchise, known as X, Earth, uh, is destroyed when two aliens decide... Hey, this be a good place for a battlefield. Sure. <laughs> and 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 Earth is like, oh, oh crap, <laughs> and tries to evacuate. And they manage to send a bunch of spaceships uh, <laughs> before the planet gets destroyed in this alien war. <laughs> it's fairly niche because you see a lot of video games that just sort of use it as window dressing and don't really elaborate on the setting because it's an easy setting, right, for a video game. It's also one that's very hmm. popular because of Halo. Uh, and Doom as well. And it's a lot more niche in writing. And also a lot of the writers are uh, weird people. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's a euphemism. It's a euphemism. It is a euphemism. I think it's also because when you would think of things that are tangentially like, of the same genre, like, when we talk about, you know, certain Star Wars, like, adaptations, or even stuff in the main media that can take, like, elements of that, there's so much of, like, the other genres involved with <laughs> that, you know, fra uh, franchise, that it's not really under military sci-fi in, like, the most conventional yeah, way. But I think, like, there are there are different kinds. There's military sci-fi where it's, like, you know, very seriously done, very, these are soldiers, they're fighting a war. And then there is military sci-fi like this Star Wars original trilogy. <laughs> or Red vs. Blue. Which I think you can consider the Star Wars original trilogy military sci-fi. It takes its cues from World War II war movies. Yeah. But at the same time, it's... That's a part of the setting, and it is not a huge part of that. Compared to something like Rogue One, which takes itself a lot more seriously, which pulls a lot more from that side of its heritage. 
yeah, you see stuff like even like, you know, some battles in the Clone Wars, stuff like that. And uh <laughs> no. Maya wouldn't you are you a fan? No, Maya, you hate rebels. Yes, I dislike rebels. I prefer Star Wars to Clone Wars. That's what I grew up with. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I, almost everyone has their Star Wars media that they grew up with, and for me it was Star Wars the Clone Wars. Uh, mine was the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> Despite us being the same age. Yeah. Because I was like I was like three years old watching Star Wars. We're probably mm-hmm. like eight. <laughs> oh, I, I was probably about the same age watching Star Wars. My parents were huge Star Wars fans. Our um They've been making a like camper van out of a shuttle bus and it's covered in star wars references meanwhile i grew up watching the special editions of the original trilogy on vhs (laughs) yeah yeah you're old we get it get off my lawn (laughs) maya did you have vhs or dvds uh we had both when i was a kid we had a lot of vhs stuff when i was really young but I'll, we have mostly DVDs. Yeah. Do you guys remember Blu-rays? Blu-rays were wild. <laughs> yeah, Streaming Blu-ray's were to kill those, didn't they? <laughs> I, I think Blu-ray discs might still be used for, like, some video games. I remember seeing, I think, a video game that used a Blu-ray disc or something. I don't remember exactly. That is fascinating. But yeah, I owned a bunch but, like, streaming killed, like, physical media, which is a shame. <laughs> Just like video killed the radio star. But, yeah, but, like, with Star Wars, it is... <laughs> without streaming, like, we were all stuck watching the same movie, like, <laughs> 200 times over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and And it really is weird, considering, like, kids these days will just never experience that. Well, okay, I had I had a blockbuster down the street. We we could go and try new movies at video games. Yeah, but when you have like the the one you always have, the one you own, you just watch that over and over. <laughs> That's something like kids these days will never experience because they're just like, oh, I need to watch this ten ten second TikTok clip and then flick to the next one. <laughs> uh Sag. But yeah, going from that to back to military stuff. <laughs> anyway, military sci-fi. Where, 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 where were we? I believe we were on what you mentioned last night when I was writing the script. D- the D&D party trap. Okay, right. So I feel like if you are, this is a fan fiction podcast, right? This is what we are talking about. Yeah. Ostensibly. Um, ostensibly. I feel like there are two easy traps to fall into if you are trying to write military sci-fi and you're not familiar with it. For the first trap, anyway. And they're sort of opposite sides. The first one is, I think, to approach it like it's just, like, stock fantasy. And I think I told... I referred to this to fell as the D&D party trap. And that's... Like, saying that your characters are a squadron in a military, in a military sci-fi setting. And then treating them as a D&D party. And I think the problem with that is that you are liable to lose elements of the setting. Because, like, I... Where are my notes? <laughs> you are... The, you, you don't necessarily do what you want to do. You do what you're told to do. You do what your job well, is. Maybe you do what you want to do, but you're not a D&D party. You don't check in at base every six months and then go out and do whatever the hell you want for the next three years. Maybe you do, but <laughs> you're, you're soldiers. You're part of a military bureaucracy. They have superiors. They have resources. They have logistics. They have orders. They're allies. They are part of a bigger machine. Maybe they don't have those things. But then maybe you're not writing about a military. It doesn't have to be a military. They could be freedom fighters. They could be a militia. They could even be terrorists. But then you have to take the effort to think about what they are. Well, yeah, I mean, if we, you just have to look at, like, any good military adaptation of any other real-life war. <laughs> you know, 
uh, yeah, think- and see how it actually works. And, you know, <laughs> like, you can't have them be, you know, even like a fantasy military. A fantasy military is way different because they've got to deal with, like, <laughs> unexpected things a lot more often. Well, like... Uh- <laughs> Hot take. I think writing a fantasy military is not that different from writing a sci-fi military, but that's... We are going to circle back to that, because <laughs> I will... That is a topic I am going to spend a while. <laughs> I was going somewhere with this. So you were talking about the D&D party trap. Oh, yeah. There's one book recently that fell a little flat for me, I feel like, because the pitch was that these are soldiers, they're fighting a war, whatever. And then it never really treated the characters like they were fighting a war. They were just sort of doing things. They didn't have superiors. They didn't really seem to have resources. They were just getting chucked on a planet to screw around for a few hours. And it's like, I don't... You don't have to write military sci-fi. But if you try to, it will fall flat if you don't bring in the elements that would make it military sci-fi. I think that's, like, an an element that comes with, like, research. And that's, like, that's a writer's best friend. It's, like, if you're writing about something you don't know a lot about, research, do research. Research, research, research. Yeah. Right, and, like, you don't need realism. You're probably not going for realism. Realism will probably not serve you. You're going for... Versibility. You're going for a setting that feels like it works. Like, if you have, like, in-universe consistency... It feels real, but it doesn't feel realistic. Those are two yeah. very different things. You need in-world consistency to make sense, whereas if A is happening in the past, or is A is how they structure, that everything falls like that, and that the structure, in theory, works. It doesn't right. have to be a one-to-one to real life. And, like, this is a subject where, obviously, we are talking about the military. We are talking about wars. These are very real things. You are probably going to struggle with full realism unless you have been there or you have done a lot of research. But that's not necessarily what you are writing this for. Right? You are writing this because there are a lot of themes that you can play with. Um, and I think Star Wars is a good example. It's military sci-fi. It's not really like a heavy war movie, but it's playing with the themes. And it's playing with the aesthetics. I mean, the stormtroopers are literally based off of the Nazis. Right? The Empire was drawn heavily off of Nazi Germany. And the USA. <laughs> yeah. Because George Lucas, George Lucas did. <laughs> which is based. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, the origin of the name Stormtrooper and some of that. Yeah. Uh, and the the Nazi rally shot. Yeah, Lucas took a lot away from big imperial powers of the time, you know. Uh, Star Wars happened, you know, after Vietnam. Like, right at the end there, so. Yeah, I mean, the, the protagonists were a rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> What it was like Star Wars, if we think about it in the way of a World War Two, it isn't really. It's more the World War Two antagonists. I okay, no, Star Wars really is Vietnam. Yeah, in a lot of ways, <laughs> because like this is a tangent. This isn't relevant, but to just talk about Star Wars, George Lucas is pulling from what he sees. The United States is at war with North Vietnam, which is, yes, there is the Viet Cong. That's the part everyone remembers. They are an insurgency. But the part that gets left out from popular history a lot more is that they had a military. And it was not a small one. And it was fighting a normal state-versus-state war with the United States. The insurgency is the part that won. But they had the military. And that is what George Lucas is pulling from. The Rebellion are insurgents, but they have a military. (laughs) He's pulling from what he knows, and it makes a very good setting and a very good story. And, uh, you know, like, more George Lucas praise, but, like, then the prequels are also great because they show, like, how a democracy can fall, you know? 
and that's <laughs> it just like this is the thing right with like the sequel trilogy is it says like it says a little bit at first and then says nothing afterwards. Yeah, the sequel trilogy is bad. Yeah, The sequel well, trilogy fails by first rule. Commit to the bit. And that's why it sucks. If the sequel trilogy lent, like, leaned more into like showing what Gamergate was and all this of like radicalization of young men, like it was kind of hinted at in The Force Awakens, that would have been cool. They, yeah, they, like, they nah. could have done really interesting things with the rise of fascism and an ostensibly democratic state that's actually moved the Overton window over time slowly because of forces behind the scene. Um, but they didn't do I that. Think, I think we are getting sidetracked. <laughs> yes. Nah, it's, it's all good. It's, it's military <laughs> sci-fi that's adjacent. The point. That's the point. Of course. Mil- but, military is political. <laughs> so I feel like and then you have the other trap that I think is the other side, and this is when you're way too familiar with military sci-fi, is writing it like you're smashing tanks together like action figures instead of like you're writing about characters. Like getting too caught up in what would be realistic. How would this actually happen? And there's, there's a place for that. You might like writing it, you might like reading it. I'm perfectly happy with both and i read storm rising extremely popular book that's basically what it's doing smashing all the nato and soviet military hardware together like action figures um which which is a way to have fun but but because that's a way to have fun it's easy to do that on accident when you think you're writing about characters and it will undermine your story if you cut away from your characters to go the Tupolev 22M backfire is a supersonic bomber that carries three AS4 kitchen missiles. <laughs> That's a lot of jargon. <laughs> and, uh... Readers kind of tend to not give a shit about jargon. As much as it pains me, as someone who loves getting technical about things, you gotta write and speak in plain English, uh, as the saying goes. Which is really hegemonic, but yeah, it's just it, speak plainly. <laughs> there is a place for this, which I will get to. But so, your care, your story should not be distorted to serve the setting. The setting should be made to serve the story. And what I mean by this is, you are writing military sci-fi. It will not be realistic. You get to make the rules. You can decide what those rules are and decide how they serve your story. And I think a great example of this is David Weber. Oh, who boy. Writes, <laughs> who is... I have... Two of his settings, two of my favorite series that he writes, the settings are based on, like, sets of mechanics that are objectively insane, completely blatantly contrived. And it works so well, because the world is made to serve the story he wants to tell. And he commits to the bit. It takes itself seriously. It plays by its own rules. I'm assuming you're Honorverse, talking about Honorverse. Uh, yeah, Honorverse, yes. Honorverse is the big one, but also safe. Yeah. Because yes, Honorverse is, is so good. David Weber wants to write about the Napoleonic Wars in space. This series is explicitly, not explicitly, implicitly, but as implicitly as you can get without saying it out loud, you know. Horatio Hornblower in space. And every aspect of the setting is made to serve that. The spaceships have uh, propulsion systems that work by generating giant gravity sails. The gravity sails make them impenetrable to the top and bottom. They project shields to the sides, but they project nothing to the front and back of the direction of travel. So what you get is a setting where you have Napoleonic broadside warfare. Because they're impenetrable to the top and bottom, they can be hit to the sides, and they are incredibly vulnerable to the front and back. This is how Napoleonic warships fought. They have missiles that, are, that act like broadside, the cannonballs you would fire at a broadside. They are fired from broadside tubes. They can't be fired too fast or they'll interfere with each other's targeting. When they hit, they do most of their damage by throwing by superheating the material and throwing splinters of parts of the ship through the ship. This was how people were killed. 
in Napoleonic naval battles, the cannonballs would throw splinters everywhere, and those were lethal. Also, spalling is just an effective way to uh, turn anything inside a metal can into mush. That it is. I think that's they how have, a lot of effective anti-tank weapons work in modern warfare. It's, and they have rings of gravity projectors that they use to project the sails they travel in hyperspace. If your hyperspace nodes get shot off, you can't go into hyperspace. This is an element of the Napoleonic series, like naval battles, and especially the specific fiction about it that Weber is pulling from. And I could keep going, but the point is, these are incredibly contrived mechanics. They're not realistic. Maybe they're plausible. Probably not. But he takes them seriously. They serve the story he wants to tell. And that story is about a naval officer cut off from her superiors because, and this is important, they don't have FTL communications other than, you know, flying a ship out there and talking about it. Also an element of Napoleonic naval warfare. Also an element of Napoleonic <laughs> naval warfare because they didn't have radios. Um, and so the story he wants to tell is about a naval officer cut off from her superiors who's having to make these decisions, who's having to make these sacrifices. And it works. The plot, the setting, the mechanics of the setting serve the story he wants to tell. And the other one is Safehold, which is even more insane. <laughs> because the story he wants to tell is a country fighting for its life, speedrunning through military technology from the Thirty Years' War to the First World War. And he's like, well, how do I make this happen? Okay, um, humanity lost a war of extinction to an alien race and sent out a last-ditch colony. The, the last-ditch colony was supposed to hide and not reinvent electricity for a few hundred years to make sure they moved on. The administrators of the colony went insane and created a religion to make sure they would never re-advance because they think they couldn't take the risk. Uh, one administrator disagreed with this and left behind an AI with a bunch of future tech <laughs> and an android body to fix things and wake up in a thousand years in case they broke. Okay, this is a little insane, but it serves the story he wants to tell, and it's a very good story. <laughs> and I think this comes into my other piece of advice, which is commit to the bit. Whatever you're doing, commit to it. If you take it yourself seriously, the readers will take you seriously. Yeah, um... There's also another David Weber book that I have read. This is actually the only David Weber work I have read so far. <laughs> I have been threatened with the Honorverse, um, but I've never actually been... Um... If you want to write military sci-fi, you could do a lot worse as a starting place than David Weber. Yeah, and Maya, I'm pretty sure I have told you to read Safehold before. Uh, I know Steam does. <laughs> I told Maya to read Safehold the last time I was here. <laughs> uh... On yesterday, I almost said yesterday's episode, last week's episode, I mentioned another David Weber work, Out of the Dark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's also military sci-fi, uh, and as I told Cam, it is also apocalyptic fiction. It is, I love it, it's fun, it's, it's wacky, okay. it's wackier than I think the other two mentioned so far. Okay, yeah, and because it's wackier, I wasn't really thinking of it the way I was thinking of Otterverse and Safehold. And I'm not going to spoil anything, because <laughs> this is not no, something that... that should be spoiled. No, that <laughs> twist. Hard left turn. <laughs> but Weber has a story he wants to tell. It's objectively insane. The things he does to the setting to make it work are objectively insane. But he commits to the bit, and it works. It does work. And there's a lesson to be learned from that. Um, and something as well, given this podcast's roots in the Ruby fandom, deep, deep sigh to everyone who is hearing that for the first time, I'm sorry. I think Ruby is an appropriate mention. As Okay, yes. I do. I have a lot of thoughts on this. This was in my notes, but I will let you continue. <laughs> There is a branch of some members of the Ruby community, including 
one of my friends in the community who wishes Ruby was more of a military sci-fi story because it it is not. Uh, the armies in Remnant, or well, the only army, the Elysian army, is ineffectual. They well lose basically every fight that we see them get into over the course of the show. Whether it's to a couple of kids, an army of monsters, a really badly written terrorist organization, an <laughs> army of monsters, one singular monster, and I think that's all the fights they get into. Right, and I think at the risk of giving the thought behind the setting more credit than it deserves, because it does deserve some credit. But I don't know how much. They have um, they have they have one moment of glory at the end of volume two. Right. They have a they have occasional moments of glory. Ruby is a if you look at Ruby as a military sci-fi setting, which is a weird lens, but let's roll with it. <laughs> the mechanics of the setting have been made to serve the story it wants to tell. It wants to tell a story about anime college students killing a bunch of monsters, and then God. So, okay, yeah. we're in a setting where individual people can have superpowers and be bulletproof. Not everyone does, but our main characters do, and a lot of other people do. The common cultural milieu of the setting is making giant swords that fold into guns. Sure, okay, why not? This checks. <laughs> they are fighting... Monsters that feed on fear. Okay. And the world has organized itself in a way where, right, they are hunters killing monsters. They are not soldiers fighting a war. The faction that does see itself as soldiers fighting a war loses because that isn't what's happening. They are organized for the problem wrong. And this lends itself to the story Ruby wants to tell. It is about individuals. It is about... The choices you make. It's not about soldiers fighting a war. Which, granted, those are common plot elements for soldiers fighting a war. But, you know, the setting does what the story wants it to do. If it was about an army fighting a war, it would be a different story. Yeah, and that's why the fans of the show who want to see more military action are always inevitably disappointed because the Elysian army was made to lose the fight. Right, like, would it be realistic if they won? Probably. Maybe. That's not what we're here for, though. That's not even what they're here for. The Sky Battleship fleet isn't here to win. It is here to be set dressing to a backslided authoritarianism. And that's what it is. And that's what it does. Um, and I think Pacific Rim... Pacific is an example Rim. of how you can play the military sci-fi tropes while also having a story that is primarily about a few larger-than-life individuals. Also, for uh, listeners who obviously can't see this happen, I did, like, football goalposts as I chanted Pacific Rim. I'm a big fan <laughs> of the series. Or, well, the movie. The singular movie. I am movie. a huge... Oh, I am a huge fan of the singular movie. And the anime. That is acknowledged... And the anime. The anime's solid. Because what Pacific Rim does is it wants a military sci-fi vibe, and it wants to tell a story about a handful of larger-than-life characters. So what it does is pitch a setting in which you have a few pilots fighting, piloting walking skyscrapers. Okay, so now you have all your elements. You, you, there aren't that many pilots because you can't build that many walking skyscrapers but they have this whole military organization behind them because it takes a lot of people to build and maintain a walking skyscraper. And I think Gundam as well also plays with this for those who are more familiar with anime. I've actually only seen Witch for Mercury, but I'm guessing this is likely similar in the others, where you have not quite skyscraper robots. These are more... um. I think they're more reasonably sized robots, which is... Um, out of, they're still the biggest robots out of, like, almost every mecha. Yeah, they, they are quite big. <laughs> but um, they're, they're more reasonable than Pacific Rim, which... Is 
you have actually, given the scaling down of the robots, you actually do have quite a few pilots, and you have support crew and support infrastructure. And you also have um, kind of the college fighting monsters thing. Well, at least in the case of Witch for Mercury, with the case of the name, of, I can't forget the name, but the school at which most of this se- show, I almost said series, takes place uh, at. Astacasia? Yeah, Astacasia. Yeah, that's about where I was going with that. <laughs> can, can I give praise to an un- unlikely Uh-oh. thing for some good showcase? Uh, feel free. Let's talk about the first Bayformers movie. That thing Ooh, is actually okay. I have pretty good with that. that. Oh, I should. I should see go- it, but I haven't. Like, people, like, I agree with every movie after that, but the first Bayformers movie, it's like the military aspect of that movie is actually pretty good. <laughs> and that is something I have heard. Yeah, it's like the military is actually effective against the Decepticons. Yeah, that, that is something. <laughs> and it's like, as a fan hmm. of sci fi and military technology, just technology in general, I wish it was a little bit more common for the military to be something other than utterly useless, if only because it would be nice to have a change. Right, and I think it's easy to write the military as incompetent, because if they were competent, they would win. But there are other ways to do that, right? The Elysian military has its act together, but they're not fighting the war they think they're fighting. And that is why they lose. Also, I do kind of get mildly peeved when um a tank fires a shell and it does nothing and then the tank gets one dinked like <laughs> mild peeve right and i think those things are harder to kill than it would seem i think it feels better when the military is not incompetent they know what their job is they're decent at doing it but this isn't their job and they're out of their depth they're not fighting the enemy they're prepared to fight they're not fighting the enemy they think they're fighting they're bringing the wrong tools to the job. I think that works better. I mean, I mean, ultimately in Bayformers, I think there's like six Decepticons and humans, maybe seven. I think they take out two of them, and that that's <laughs> that that's like right. that's like great. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> that is acceptable. They take out the mini scorpion one, and they take out the helicopter one that attacked them at the beginning of the movie in a full circle kind of way. Good job. What an arc. Uh, Applause. (laughs) Uh, So I think I've grown out the end of my notes. Um, Yeah, it's... I I did have a couple of things left. We actually got through this quicker than I expected. I thought this would be um, something where we would run low on time. Run out of time on. Uh, See, like, there are a lot of things I could say, I think, but I don't... There are a lot of things I could say that would not mean anything to someone who is not already familiar with the setting. So <laughs> what I want to say is how to approach the setting. That kind of Yes. What, what are some of, like, the worst sci-fi military showcases you guys can think of? Ooh. It's just like, God, this Ooh. is Halo so TV show. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Tab. I haven't watched that. I'm not going to. It will only. Yeah, be well, well, that's why. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm with you on that. You could probably hear me squeaking around in my chair a little bit, but I've not watched the show. I intend to eventually force it upon Steamed and cause both of us immense headaches. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I won't. I refuse. You can't make me. <laughs> uh, and it is. Oh. <sighs> Halo had a good thing going. And then they didn't do it. Yeah, I think... So going solely off of what I've heard, so correct me if I'm wildly off base, Halo's traits was always that it was about characters in tough situations making sacrifices for things that were bigger than themselves. The Halo TV show throws that away and turns it into a soap opera. Not that anything is wrong with There are several opera, things wrong with soap But it feels opera, but... a little weird to take that route in a plot line about the human race being driven to a Yeah, extinction. it was... Because <laughs> Halo is a story about There's some total human extinction, there. and the Halo show just trivializes the conflict. It's not about extinction anymore, and that's... Guys, you've missed the whole point. The point is about what we do 
when we are pushed to those extremes, the choices we make, the sacrifices you make, the the sac the principles you throw away, and then wondering afterwards if it was worth it. That's what the best Halo focuses on, and that is what the Halo show does not touch at all. The two statements I've heard about that TV show is that Eva should have been a Mass Effect <laughs> like adaptation. <laughs> And the other statement is, this is someone's original work that they couldn't get made unless they slapped Halo on it. <laughs> and it, it would have worked better as its own thing. And I think given the setting of Mass Effect, the tensions that happen within the Halo show would be bigger and would fit better. In the Halo universe, the tensions that happen are... Harvest is like, I don't know, the death of a few thousand people. It's... That is a spark compared against a bonfire when you... The Harvest Contact in the Halo lore, which is the death of trillions of people wiped out by what are called glassing cannons, which are these massive directed energy weapons that are so hot they turn sand, dirt, into glass. Into the, well, it's not like literally glass, but they turn it into a glassy substance. They melt through any building made by human civilization and there's there's no escape you the only times that there have been survivors of those attacks is deep deep underground and the aftermath of a glassing is a lot like a nuclear winter it's total annihilation yeah so i think here we have big pitfall number one writing about a war which is bad. Wars are bad. Hot take. Okay, and then George not R. R. treating the setting <laughs> with the weight it deserves. Because it deserves... Unless you are explicitly writing like a parody, right? Which I guess you could do, but that's not my expertise. It's a subject matter that deserves to be treated seriously. And it will fall flat and hurt your writing if it's not. Yeah, that actually... um that tracks with what we've said a lot on the show about treating treating what you're writing with respect and treating the people you are writing about uh, because like it or not there are going to be people who have lived through some version or something that resembles the situations you put your characters through whether you write sci-fi whether you write uh, high fantasy whether you write detective murder mystery novels I mean when we look at like um Red versus Blue, for example, that's like, it's a parody in a sense of like, it parodies most of, you know, like Halo, Halo story, but like, it's more like I really recontextualize stuff or when it does, or and most of the series doesn't even involve a war. Yeah, and... Uh, it's not until the Chorus arc we actually get Well, th a there war. is implications of the Human Covenant War happening in the background, but it's not really yeah. relevant to the story. And also... Well, I think it's relevant to the story in that they expect viewers to know that context, and that context is why the bad things that happen happen. Yes. Because when your back is to the wall, what choices do you make? What principles are you willing to sacrifice? And there's, there's always something that you... There is a line where you will go, and there's a line where you won't go. And where that line of where you won't go is drawn is different for people. And for one of the main antagonists of Red vs. Blue, he draws that line in very funny shapes. Well, like a hexagon? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... Man, you want to talk bad military sci-fi. We do. Genlock season oh, 2. Oh, no. <laughs> there is no Does season not exist. Season two. <laughs> you know the okay, party line. But go on. <laughs> the thing about Genlock season 2 is that season 1 is decent. It treats its subject matter decent. It's perfectly it's not great. acceptable. I wouldn't call it great, but it's decent, right? It does what it needs to do. It tells a good story. And then what season two does is just sort of throw all of that out the window. Because I will maintain that 
Season 2, as bad as it was, could have worked as Season 3. If the whole reel of this is how we got where we are in the intro was Season 2, a full-size Season 2, that would make Season 3 so, make sense. But they sort of... They want a last stand setting without really doing the work to give that the emotional weight it needs. So it's just like, okay, I guess... Last season ended on a high note, but I guess everything went bad during the time skip. And now our characters are pushed to the brink of despair and about to commit suicide in ways that are really poorly handled <laughs> by the yeah, plot. And also, you know, aside from the massive Islamophobia uh, that is baked into season oh, two. Oh yeah, that, that ain't great uh, <laughs> Yeah, so in the process of cribbing from historical conflicts to write your story... Because you will do that. Let, that's how you... That's a good source of inspiration. That's how you get the versatility. Do not mistake actual, like, past bigotry and hatred and racism for critical elements of the plot and put them in your story. Right? You could have stories about people being racist. But if you're going to use the modern war the modern war on terrorism, as a source of inspiration. Do not accidentally bring all the Islamophobia along with you when no one, when there's no reason for it to exist in the setting. And it... Yeah. <laughs> Just... Consider the baggage you yes. are bringing, I guess, that, is my advice. That is good advice for that. Uh, Jeez, it's a good thing that Genlock Season 2 doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Man, imagine yeah. if a major It would be terrible if that, that show had actually been made. Good thing there was only one yeah. season. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of bad military sci-fi that actually does exist, um, have any of you seen the movie Battleship? I've, I've heard of it. It's based it. on the uh, the okay. board game or like uh, what yeah. is Hot a childhood take. game. Hot yeah. take. Battleship is good military sci-fi. Objectively insane setting mechanics enable to tell the story it wants to tell, which is also objectively insane. What else do you need? <laughs> I will say I will say one thing. Um, it is the only movie that I can think of where uh, I went to see it in the theater with my family, and it made my dad yell at the screen to the point where people around us were turning around and shushing him. Wow! <laughs> I now I almost have to um, see it. Disclaimer. I watched Battleship the movie while I was in middle school. It's very possible that if I watched it now, I would be yelling at this <laughs> Okay. Uh, which is the... why I'm not going to watch it again and leave that off on a high note. <laughs> the, the thing that made him yell was the scenes of them getting the Battleship Missouri underway. Ooh. Um, essentially, for reasons... A modern naval squadron is basically, was it wiped out or trapped or whatever by the aliens, and the uh, junior officer is, in, is at Pearl Harbor and has to get the last battleship that they have online so that they can go, go and take the fight to the aliens, and so he has to get all these World War II veterans together to turn the Missouri from a museum piece back into a working battleship. Um, did you know that the barrels on the Missouri are filled with cement? Oh, I know. Yeah. I know, yeah. But, like, look, it's a movie about yeah. people getting a battleship for some reason and shooting aliens with it. You can't watch that movie and get upset when they bend reality to get a battleship for some reason and shoot aliens with it. I feel like that's like the chorus of pension of disbelief. <laughs> that is true. It's yeah, a movie yeah. about a battleship. You gotta get your battleship. <laughs> now, this does bring me, since we're talking about um, military sci-fi and Hollywood movies in particular. Uh-oh. There's a bit of an elephant in the room. Uh-oh. I'm scared. Which is uh -oh. U.S. military propaganda. Ah! Yes. Um... Oh, this would I'm be great for me. <laughs> so, uh, I think Top Gun is, um, first one off the bat. For, or first one to bat. First 
First thing we're going to hit I mean, with a baseball yeah. bat. There we go. <laughs> Top Gun is explicitly propaganda for the U.S. military. I actually haven't seen either movie, but it, it is well documented that this movie was funded by the U.S. military to uh, boost recruitment numbers, and it worked. It did boost uh, the number of young men joining the Air Force. I believe that it is a standing policy of the U.S. military that um, if any films want to use actual uh, locations or um, equipment, uh, they have to show the military in a good light. I think that is, like, uh, I mentioned Battleship. I'm pretty sure that was military-funded, and I'm pretty sure that the, at least the first Bayformers also had military funding. Yeah, so uh, just just make your own equipment, guys. Uh, practical effects are not that hard. <laughs> it's like, um... You, you guys ever hear about Dwayne The Rock Johnson's contract? <laughs> like, well, he demands... He's not allowed to lose a fight? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, which, I have heard which, that. Which is weird, because as a wrestler... He was, like, very giving <laughs> and, like, prepared to look like a fool. But Hollywood, he's like, nah, doesn't work for me. He Hulk Hogan. Like, like, like he, in Hollywood, he's Hulk Hogan for some reason. <laughs> nah, brother, doesn't work for me. I, I'll just win. <laughs> when you spend a lot of time uh, losing fights, eventually you get kind of tired of it. But you then lose a lot this in wrestling. This is why I playing Rainbow Six Siege. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I say that, and yet in like a week, probably I'm going to be playing Siege again. It'll <laughs> happen eventually, sometime. <laughs> Just from like a foreigner's point of view, another trope that I hate is when, like, the like other militaries, uh, like working with the U.S. military, are shown as incompetent in comparison. I, yeah, like. I I like like this was something I watched a, a video of it was a UK military historian watching Band of Brothers and he was just like like in this scene they show like the British tank driver is very cautious and like oh we're not allowed to do any damage to buildings and I can't see it it's like he was like no that this is just like Americans pretending that the British were very cautious and not as good as the Americans. It's like, yeah, <laughs> bit, right, of, like, bit of propaganda. <laughs> every nationality does this. If you're pulling from a piece of media, be aware whose biases it has. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that. That's a good one. I've I've never shown you Corporation Wars, have I, Steamed? No. Okay, it is. Um, is. it's military sci-fi. Uh, it is. One of the thickest books I own. Oh no! It is. I, I've actually just gone and got it because it sits near me on my desk from my recording space. Eight hundred seventy-seven pages. So I don't know if it's actually the longest book I have. I'm about halfway through it, or I, I was at. I was on page three hundred and seventy-nine. That's where I was last time I read this book a couple years ago. It is military sci-fi. It is unhinged it actually says a lot of very good <laughs> things about um america there's a lot to yes, say <laughs> and also capitalism there's a lot to say <laughs> if we're going to talk about military sci-fi and i'm going to recommend people read military sci-fi books to get an idea of the vibe i feel like i have a responsibility to put this wording out here a lot of it is written by people with really messed up hard right political views just be aware yeah. of that that's not the whole... Not every military sci-fi writer is a Nazi, but a lot of Nazis write military sci-fi. And it, <laughs> you look at the vibe, you look at the things that Nazis look up to, right? The way... One of the ways we portray Nazis as media is as these scary demon things. And the Nazis like that. To them, that's cool. That's edgy. They like that. They want that. They want to be like that. And... They like the imperial boot. They want to put it on. They want to step on people. Not the fun way. Right, like, there's... 
just be aware of that tendency because a lot of them will try to like hide it and write these. Don't let it ruin the genre for you. Also, don't let it get to you. Hey, if you want to know like good, like <laughs> anti-fascist things, everyone go watch Andor. <laughs> Yeah, and good. Or, and or good. And or and or good. so good. <laughs> um, Steam, do you have any? Do you have any authors you know of who are good military sci-fi who uh, aren't lunatics? If people want to get started on the genre, right? So David Weber, I like David Weber. He has, he was a right. He was a white dude writing in the nineties. He still writes today, but you know, tarred in the nineties. There is some baggage there. If we're going to talk about this. It is baggage board of ignorance, not ill intent. He does get better in the later books, as I recall. More recent books. But I do strongly recommend David Weber. Very there's, good writer. Yeah, there's some very interesting good gender at, going on in Safe Yes, there, there is very gender. Very good writer. Um, very good at making the setting serve the story he wants to tell. Strong recommend. David Drake, I have not read it a while. His stuff is a very interesting brand of military sci-fi in that it is explicit. It is very much based on his own experiences in Vietnam as a tank driver. So, I have not read it in a while. I cannot speak to it. I remember it is very good. Um, as for shows, I honestly, if you want to look at like a sort of parody approach to Bill sci-fi, Red versus Blue is very good. yeah. Honestly, Red versus Blue is um. Once the plot gets going, it's actually a pretty solid handling of it, I think. Um, Andor is good, Rogue One is good. Yeah, I enjoyed Greg Bear from when I did a stint with a lot of military sci I say a lot, I, I like kind of got Bear my toes into the pool and then got distracted by something shiny, probably Destiny. And so never actually dug into it much, but I do have one of Greg Bear's book that, books that I remember enjoying. Uh, it's War Dogs. It's uh, on my bookshelf behind me, and I need to read it. But yeah, I, I, I don't know anything about his um, tendencies, so. And I think if you want to write about Space Marines, you can do worse than reading Heinlein's Starship Troopers. Heinlein is a weird dude. Heinlein is a controversial dude. But he sort of invented the genre in a way, and it's worth reading. Like, he's not one of the titans of American science fiction for no reason. The, so, Warhammer 40k, which is actually grimdark, not military sci-fi, there's a difference. Ooh, okay. Warhammer 40k is a setting with baggage yes. to it. <laughs> um, a lot of Warhammer 40k fans are Nazis. Not all of them are. A lot of my friends growing up were Warhammer 40k fans, and calling any of them Nazis would be... Inaccurate, to say the least. Yeah, because they're probably fem cells. <laughs> <laughs> See, I know the people uh, Maya's talking about. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> uh, that is incorrect. <laughs> yeah, um... Fem cell would be... <laughs> an inaccurate depiction. <laughs> See, not every Warhammer 40k fan is a Nazi. Um, some of them aren't, though. Because of what I mentioned earlier with the Nazis being attracted to the big scary thing because they are afraid. That's, that's why they're fascists. They are afraid, fundamentally. And so they want that big scary armor so they can stomp and squish the scary thing. Which is, of course, other people. And I think with Warhammer especially... It sort of morphed from the Imperium being a parody to the Imperium being intentionally evil and sort of a cautionary tale over time. But there was a big period where they were just sort of like unironically endorsing the Imperium. Not fully intentionally, but that is that is baggage the setting. Uh, <laughs> anywho, that's... Poe's Law cuts both ways. Um, Gaunt's Ghost by, I forget the first name, Abner's the last name. I, I have not read it yet. I keep meaning to read it. It's one of those books that you want to set aside time for, you know, and I just... You just haven't. 
I thought that might be my fault. Um, but oops, I have heard, I have gotten very strong recommendations from people. Yes. I trust. Uh, Warhammer 40k has interesting tech. Don't be. <laughs> you could you could do worse than being steamed. <laughs> you could be Rowling. Oh. Which sorry for the damnation by faint praise there. <laughs> but I had to take the dig at Rowling. <laughs> My it really didn't have to, but okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, for me, I'll say, like, I'll always recommend them because they are my favorite game series of all time. But any Xeno game, because, you know, for a Japanese company, Monolith Soft and everything, they are far more progressive than, you know, even the most progressive Japanese companies you could think of. Um, and when you do get into, like, the military aspects, whether it's the Bionis versus the Mechonis, uh, Uriah versus Moradain, or Kevis versus Agnes, which is like, <laughs> I mean, listen to this premise, guys. Two uh, uh, nations are made up of people between the ages of 10 and like 25 are forced to fight each other just for the sake of it by a group of undying old people who want to keep the will mm -hmm. the same as it is. <laughs> Ooh, things, <laughs> things I would recommend, actually. You have reminded me of this. Or, I don't know. The train of thought arrived there. I don't know how it <laughs> We've been there. And these are, interestingly, works of fan fiction, but not, I think, in the sense most people are thinking of when they come to watch this podcast. The Edge of Midnight Project and the Wolf 259 Project. Well, that last one sounds... Are very long. interesting pieces of Star Trek fan uh -oh. fiction that are pitched as historical projects in set. And I think they're a very good example of finding ways to make a weird... Finding seriousness in a setting that is often not serious. Not taken seriously. Yeah, uh... And they do it very well, I think. And so, strong recommendation, worth reading if you're into that. Steamed a quick question for you. Yes. There was one called Edge of Midnight, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're gonna need to list the author for that one. Um, edgeofmidnight.weebly.com Thank you. <laughs> because I'm curious. I go, okay, you know what? I want to look up what my friend is recommending. The first result for Edge of Midnight is, um... Go on. Okay, so we're not... Oh, yeah, don't look up Wolf259 either. That doesn't get you anywhere. Um, uh, we'll, we'll put links in the episode description. Maybe you should... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll, I'll, I'll figure out how to find those. Oh, wait, it's Wolf359. <laughs> yeah, uh, fun fact, I don't actually watch Star Trek. Clown behavior. <laughs> All right, well... We've had the ADHD talking hour... Wolf 359 project that you can't actually look up. That would say. <laughs> 359, not 259. Alright. Ian? Yeah? Do we have anything in the mailbag? Uh, no new mail this week. Uh, we do love hearing from people who listen to this show. So, if you want to get in touch with us, you can shoot us an email. Uh, our address is fanfictapes at gmail.com. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us on Spotify, or leave us a comment on our YouTube channel. We, we do check that from time to time. Uh, we also have Twitter, where, well, the site formerly known as Twitter. Uh, my, you run that feed. Yes, at fanfiction at fanfiction tapes. At fanfiction I almost capes. said at fanfiction capes. No, it's at fanfiction tapes, capital F, capital T. Uh, and if any of our listeners have read anything we've talked about or recommended on the show, we would love to hear from you, hear what you thought. Maybe you want to yell at us. Maybe you're like, yo, you got any more? We'd love to hear that. I am there. You also will get, if you monitor that account, me posting about episodes and also me shitposting sometimes when I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Just waiting for Maya to realize she has to do the rest of the outro. <laughs> well, now that I've been helpfully reminded by my co-host Dylan, I am and have been Maya. I am and always will be Dylan. Okay, I am Steve. Do you have anything you'd like to promote anywhere? I do not have anything I would like to promote at this time. All right. Um, have a great day. Read some books. <laughs> and I'm our producer, Ian. Until next time, bye. Bye. <laughs>